Thank you, Mario. A story is told of a senior citizen who was uh, driving down 280, and he gets a call from his wife, and his wife says, Al, be careful. There's a story on the news that there's a man driving on the wrong side of 280. And he says, you won't believe it. It's not one madman. It's hundreds of them. <laughs> According to the Bible, there are only two ways and two paths and the man on the right path is called blessed, and the man on the wrong path is called cursed. A few months ago, uh, we were parking at uh, Whole Foods, and my son pointed out that the car next to us had a personalized license plate that said blessed. Um, and if you're on Instagram or familiar with social media, the hashtag blessed is one of the most popular hashtags and apparently one of the most annoying. People use it to do what is called humble bragging, where they kind of humbly brag about themselves. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about what does it mean to be blessed? Is it material blessings? Uh, we know of all the spiritual blessings that God has bestowed on us. The New Testament talks about it. Uh, is it religious li liberty and freedom? We say we are blessed to live in America, and, and that is true. But I was thinking, is a Christian in a persecuted country with very few material resources, limited personal freedoms, are they blessed? And to bring it home closer, if you or I were to be led to move to one of these countries with limited freedoms and had to live the rest of our lives there, would you consider yourself blessed? And you can see how our personal comforts a part of our blessings there. Another question I think about a lot is, you know, why do the ungodly seem to prosper, both individuals and nations? And some of the most prosperous nations you see in the news today uh, actively work against churches, work against Christians. There is persecution in these countries. Why do these nations prosper? Can we consider them blessed or not? And finally, do you consider yourself blessed? And if yes, why? So this morning I want to show you from Psalm 1 what it means to be blessed. How blessing has to do less with material and earthly blessings and everything to do with our worldview, our relationship with God, our character and our destiny. And the meaning of the word blessed is defined many places in scripture and the book of Psalms is a great place to start. So I want to read this morning from Psalms 1, and actually let's read Psalm 1 and 2, and if someone can volunteer to read both Psalm, Psalms 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The 
kings of the earth set themselves against rulers. <coughs> take uh, the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, "Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us." He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them with His fury, saying, "As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill." I will tell of the decree. The Lord says to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As for me, I will make the nation, the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O king, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Set the, serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing and with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thanks, Michael. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this new day in our lives. We thank you for gathering us here today. Thank you for all the men who came out and those who served to get us the breakfast. I pray that as we look into your word this morning, Lord, you would build us up, you would encourage us, you would correct us um, in our walk. And as we see what it means to be blessed in your eyes. Lord, maybe we, you be glorified in all that we hear and do today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Psalm 1 functions as an introduction to the whole uh, book of Psalms, and its theme is as big as the whole Bible because it tells us about people's paths and destinations. And it begins with the word blessed, as you noticed, right? Uh, some translations use the word happy, and blessed translates the Hebrew word esher, which is the idea of contentment or happiness. And the root word means to be straight or to be right. It has an association with a path or a direction. And blessed is the man speaks of the happiness, the contentment in the life of a man who is right or straight with God. You can have all the wealth, all the health, all the relationships of the world, but if you are not right with God, you cannot be blessed. So people in the world at times can be happy, can be prosperous, but being blessed is reserved for those who are right with God. It is exclusive to those who are walking the path of righteousness. But being blessed is also attainable by all who are right with God, not just the prosperous, right? Sometimes we associate being blessed with prosperity. That's not true. It's attainable by all. And the reason we, we read both Psalm 1 and 2 is that Psalms 1 and 2 are a pair. If you notice Psalm 1, it begins with the word blessed and ends with a curse. Psalm 2 begins with nations rebelling and cursing God, but it ends with blessing of all who take refuge in him. Psalm 1 is about personal holiness, and Psalm 2 is about nations that deny God and his holiness. Psalm 1 is about acknowledging or denying God at a personal level, and Psalm 2 is about denying and defying God at a level of a nation. And we see both of these increasing around us today. And when you read Psalm 1 and 2 together, there is, it's not an accident that these are placed together in, in God's word. There are some unifying elements which become obvious to us. Those who stand against God as individuals will be punished in the same way as nations who stand opposed to him. 
But today we are going to focus on Psalm 1 and what it means for us to be blessed as individuals and as men. Uh, Throughout the Bible, there are only two classifications of people in the world, the blessed man and the cursed man. And we, as at a human level, we tend to see people in different ways. You know, rich, poor, tall, short, um, athletic, unathletic, intelligent, not so intelligent, nice hair, no hair. Uh, But God sees people in two ways, blessed and cursed. Either you are on the path of being blessed or you're the path of being cursed. Uh, Stephen Lawson says this about the two paths. He says, the contrast of these paths is stark. It is antithetical. It is black and white. It is polarizing. And I would add, it is exclusive. In our world of inclusion, you cannot all be on one broad path. You are either on the right path or you're on the wrong path. There is no middle ground. There is no best of both worlds, right? There is an old African proverb which says, the man who tries to walk two paths will split his pants. <laughs> you can't do that. And Jesus reminds us in, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 15, he reminds us there are only two paths. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. One is the path of of the blessed, the other is the path of the cursed. And in these six short verses in Psalm 1, we see everything the Psalms and even the whole Bible has to say about life and eternity. It tells us how these two paths of blessing and curse are defined. It tells us how a blessed man is different from the cursed man. And as I was studying this passage over several months, it became clear that Psalm 1 provides us a framework for all of life and eternity. And we see four ways in which the blessed man or a man is either cursed or blessed. And these four are number one, worldview, number two, morality, number three, ethics, and number four, destiny. Psalm 1 in six short verses shows us how a man's worldview determines his morality. Morality determines your ethics. Ethics determine your character. Character determines your actions. And actions ultimately determine your destiny. And the question I want you to ask you, and I asked myself, as we go through these six verses is, Are you this blessed man or not? So let's look at four ways a man is blessed according to Psalm 1. Four ways a man is blessed. So number one is worldview. Verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And we see the blessed man both what he does not do and what he does do. What does he not do? He does not seek or get counsel from the wicked, nor the sinners who scoff at God, nor those who mock God. What he does do is delight and have deep satisfaction in God's word, and this is what he thinks about day and night. And in these two verses, we see two kinds of men. We see the man of the world versus man of the word. Man of the world versus man of the word. The blessed man is the man of the word. The cursed man is the man of the world. And the difference between these two, if you notice, is where they get their worldview, where they get their worldview. 
Now, everyone on this planet has a worldview. You like it or not, you agree with it or not, a two-year-old has a worldview. Their worldview is it's all about me, right? Um, a worldview, what is it? It is a lens through which you see the world and make sense of all the reality around you. It is a lens through which you see the world. Uh, Focus on the Family had an article which defined it this way. A worldview is a framework from which we view reality and make sense of life and the world. It is any ideology, philosophy, theology, movement, or religion that provides an overarching approach, approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relation to the world. For example, a two-year-old believes he is the center of the universe. A secular humanist believes the material world is all that exists. And a Buddhist believes he can be liberated from suffering by self-purification. Whether conscience, conscious or unconscious, every person has some sort of worldview. A personal worldview is a combination of all you believe to be true, what you, what you believe becomes the driving force behind every emotion, decision, and action. Therefore, whether you know it or not, your worldview affects your response to every area of life, from philosophy to science to theology to anthropology to economics, law, politics, art, social order, everything. For example, let's suppose you have bought the idea that beauty is the, in the eye of the beholder, which is secular relative truth, as opposed to beauty as defined by God's purity and creativity, which is absolute truth, then any piece of art, no matter how vulgar or abstract, would be considered art, quote-unquote, quote, a creation of beauty. So in verse 1, we see that the blessed man, what does he do? He shuns the worldview. He shuns the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand with them. He does not take sides with them nor is he counted as one among the wicked. And in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul reminds us, he says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? And in 1 Corinthians 15.13, he again warns us, Do not be deceived. What does it say? Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, you might think he's saying we are not to engage with the world, but that's not what he's saying, right? The Great Commission tells us to go out into the world. So this is not contradicting what Jesus said about going out into the world. Um, I like this quote by Dr. Stephen Lawson. He says it so well. He says, we are not to isolate from the world. We are to insulate from the world. We are to put our boat in the water. We are not to get water in the boat. That is the difference. I love that analogy. We are to get our boat in the water. We are not to get water in the boat. And scripture tells us we are to be in the world, but but not be off the world. So he's talking about separation, separation from the world. So while we go to work, while we live our lives, uh, as we relate to people, he says don't do three things. Don't ask for and listen to ungodly counsel. Don't take a stand with sinners. And don't be counted with those who mock God. All counsel that is not God's counsel is secular humanism at its core. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce wrote this about secular humanism. He says this, Humanism is a way of looking at people, particularly ourselves, apart from God. Instead of looking at people as made as creations made in the image of God, who we should love and who we should care for, Humanism looks at man as the center of everything, which is essentially a secular point of view. The best example of this secular worldview, humanism, is in the book of Daniel. 
Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, was one day on the roof of his palace looking out over his splendid hanging gardens and the prosperous city below him. He was so impressed with his handiwork, and here is what he said. Is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal resident by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty, Daniel 4.30. It was a statement that he saw that everything was of him, by him, and for his glory, which is what humanism is all about. Humanism says that everything revolves around and for God's glory. And we know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. This prideful self-glorification results in instant, literal insanity for Nebuchadnezzar. And he spent seven years living like an animal until one day he repents and he lifts his eyes to heaven and acknowledges God's glory. And this humanism doesn't start, didn't start with us in today's modern-day world. We think of a postmodern world where humanism is prevalent. It didn't start with Nebuchadnezzar. It started all the way back in the garden. So if you look at Genesis 3, verses 1 to 6, in the fall of man, you will notice that it didn't start with Eve actually eating of the fruit or coveting the fruit. It started with Satan questioning her worldview and altering her worldview. When he said to her, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And you'll see in those like six verses, once her worldview shifts from a God-centered worldview to what Satan was trying to say to her, her feelings followed, and then her action followed, and then she falls, and the rest is history, right? And everything you see today around us, all the craziness we are seeing in our culture, comes down to this one fact. It is all increasingly centered around a man-centered worldview. And in that time and culture, communication was mostly face-to-face. So you see in these two verses, you're standing, you're sitting, you're walking. It's all sort of interpersonal. You know, truth and worldview were communicated mostly through speech, uh, teaching, some writing. And we have that now. But today, communication is happening both uh, explicitly and more dangerously, implicitly in many ways. Uh, James Boyce says this. He says, here is the big problem. Non-biblical worldview doesn't just sit in a book somewhere waiting for people to examine it. They bombard us constantly from television, film, music, newspaper, magazines, academia. I would add through social media, the content on the Internet. There is so much of it, but you have to be really careful what the worldview is. I will add... Uh, those of us who work in corporate America, we are bombarded by it every day. Um, you know, sometimes I have to take training, harassment training, or other kinds of training, where the worldview is completely unbiblical, and we are made to, you know, support it, whether we like it or not. Um, and because we live in a selfish, fallen world, these ideas appeal to the desires of our flesh, and we often in- end up incorporating some of the secular worldview into our own, own thinking without thinking of it. Notice also the downward spiral in verse 1 and 2. The wicked man, what does he do? He goes from walking to standing to sitting. And there is a progressive decline that we see here. You first, uh, you go to get counsel from the ungodly. Next thing you know, you're standing with them. And then you don't even realizing you're sitting with them. And sitting means you're fully identified and you're part of them and you're mocking God with them. 
Spurgeon has to say this in his commentary about this scripture. He says, mark the graduation in the first verse. When men are living in sin, they go from bad to worse. At first, they merely walk in the counsel of the careless and the ungodly who forget God. The evil is rather practical than habitual. But after that, they become habituated to evil. And then they start standing in the way of open sinners. And if left alone, they go one step further and become pestilent teachers themselves and tempters of of others. And thus, they sit in the seat of the scornful. So there is a downward spiral there if you're not careful. So that is the ungodly. In contrast, you see that the blessed man, where does he get his counsel from? Not from the world, not from others, from God's word. He refuses to be part of the ungodly council, refuses to entertain their philosophy, refuses to be part of the entertainment. He engages them, but refuses to participate, refuses to be part of, part of them. He engages, but, but keeps a safe distance. He protects what he allows in his eyes, ears, and mind, because that will eventually influence his behavior. And what does he do? We, we read about what he does not do. What does he do? He meditates on God's word and delights in it. He finds counsel. He finds delight. He finds his satisfaction in God's word. And God's word is the lens through which he views all of life. It is the compass that helps him navigate life. So in terms of application, I have a few questions. Uh, and let's make it real and personal. All of us have a worldview, whether you see it or not. Do you know what your worldview is? Is it 100% God-centered? Is it man-centered? Is it a mix of both? The danger is when it starts becoming a mix of both. Do you allow people who don't hold on to a God-centered worldview to counsel you or to influence your life? Do you allow man-centered worldview in entertainment, social media, the just content on the internet? to shape your worldview, or do you limit and actively filter these views and voices through God-centered worldview? And do you and I delight in God's word? Do we meditate on it day and night? No, it's difficult to do that. I know that, but that's what this man does. So that's point number one. You are blessed if you are a man of the word and if you have a biblical God-centered worldview. Number two is morality. So we talked about worldview. Number two is morality. And verse three, he says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. He is like a tree planted streams of water. A blessed man is a regenerate man. The cursed man is a degenerate man. What do I mean by that? A blessed man's morality, his right standing before God, is a result of God's sovereign work in him. In verse 3, we see in the short phrase, the blessed man is described as a tree. It is planted by streams of water, while the wicked man later in the chapter is described as chaff. And the tree, if you, if you notice, uh, is a symbol of life. And essentially, what was a desert region, here is a tree, it is growing, it is prosperous. But notice the word planted. This tree did not naturally grow there. It was not always there. It was planted there, Right? It was somewhere else, and it has been moved from one place to the other and planted in this spot. And he started out as something other than a tree. Maybe a shrub, it was dying, but someone has moved him from one place and planted him here. John MacArthur in his commentary says this, 
Trees do not plant themselves, neither do sinful people transplant or transport themselves from darkness into God's kingdom. Salvation is a mark of grace, yet there is genuine responsibility in appropriating the abundant resources of God, which lead to eventual productivity. This is a picture of regeneration. And what is regeneration? It is a picture, it's the act of God whereby he renews renews the spiritual condition of a sinner. It is a spiritual change brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit so a person possesses new life, eternal life. So God, in a sovereign plan, plants this tree, this blessed man. And how does it happen? It starts with worldview. A God-centered worldview of man and his sinful nature contrasted with God and his holy nature is a starting point that leads to repentance and regeneration. And if you don't have or accept a biblical worldview that man is sinful from birth, um, then you adopt a man-centered worldview to explain all of the evil in the world, to explain the human heart, right? But seeing your sin, your need for a savior, and confessing your sin and acknowledging what Christ has done on the cross is is the starting point of being transplanted in this place like we see in this tree. And if you are feeling at this at this point, pride, you know, I, I am this blessed tree, um, I'm, all, I'm all good. Remember something, none of us in our natural state were like this tree, right? We were all, if you are a believer in Christ here today, you were not this tree at one point of time. You were transplanted in this spot. Ephesians 2, 1 to 5 reminds us where we came from. Paul says, you were, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of obedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were all there. But it doesn't end there. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So you are now a regenerate man, but you were once a degenerate man, right? So number one, you are blessed if you have a godly worldview. Number two, you are blessed if you have been regenerated. God has put his morality, his heart, a new heart, his, and your standing with God is based not on what you have done, but what the, the good work that Christ has done for us. That's number two. Number three is ethics. And ethics drives your character, it drives your behavior, your lifestyle. In verses three and four, he says, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that eat, yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. And in verse four, he says, the wicked are not so but are like shaft that the wind drives away. Like shaft that the wind drives away. A blessed man is one whose ethics shape his character, his behavior, his morals, his actions. He is fruitful in godliness and a blessing to others. The dictionary defines ethics this way. Ethics is based on well-founded standards of right and wrong that prescribe what humans ought to do usually in terms of rights, obligations, benefits to society, fairness, spiritual virtues. 
Ethics consists of standards of behavior our society accepts. Now, the key word is standards of behavior our society accepts. We'll come back to that in a minute. But we see here that his worldview and God-centered morality shapes his ethics, how he lives out his life in relation to others. And a society's morality, as we see in our world today, affects its ethics, right? A man's morality informs and deeply influences how he will live out his life. And notice the contrast in verses 3 and 4 between a tree, which is the blessed man, and shaf, which is the cursed man. If your worldview is man-centered and you're still degenerate, like all of us were, you are described as shaf. What is shaf? It is the waste product, the residue after you know grain is removed from wheat or other grain. It is useless. It is unsubstantial. It has no value. It is no use. It is lightweight. It is blown about. It is tossed about by every wind. It has no use. And it's complete contrast with the tree. And to understand the contrast between the tree, the blessed man, and the cursed man, there is another part of scripture that that uh, gives us a picture, the parallel picture, which is in Jeremiah 17. If, so, if you can turn to Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 9. <clears throat> if someone can read Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 9. shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Thank you, Steve. So we see two two types of plant life that are paralleled in both Psalm 1 and Jeremiah chapter 17. We see the blessed man who is a tree and the cursed man who in Jeremiah 17 is a shrub and in Psalm 1 is shaft, right? And there's a huge contrast between these two men, the blessed man and the cursed man. And let's go through the contrast here. So the, the blessed man is a tree, sign of life. He has leaves. Uh, both, are, both, by the way, are growing in a hostile desert environment. So keep that in mind. But the blessed man has leaves. It's a symbol of prosperity. Uh, the, the leaves don't wither. He provides shade to others. The cursed man has no leaf. It's a shrub. You know, barely keeping itself alive, no good. The blessed man, the tree is fruitful, blesses other people. We have some trees in our in our um, driveway. We have plum tree, we have a couple of plum trees, apple tree, pear tree. We get a ton of fruit. Not only do we get fruit, our neighbor, whether they like it or not, gets fruit, right? So uh, the blessed man is like a tree, blesses others, source of life to others. The cursed man, a shrub doesn't really offer any blessing to anyone. No shade, no fruit. It's just there. It's just surviving. 
both are in a hostile environment, but the blessed man, the tree, what does it say? It's deeply rooted. The reason it lives, it's drawing from a source. It sends out its roots. It's actively involved in, in growing to the stream. And this is our role, to send out our roots to, to, into God's word and to, to learn. Whereas the shrub, the cursed man in Jeremiah 17, shallow roots, a shrub has shallow roots, um, can and will be uprooted easily, not rooted in life-giving soil and water. It's not trying to draw deeply. And what is the root cause? No pun intended. What is the root cause? The tree trusts in the Lord, it says in Jeremiah 17. It turns away from worldly influence and it delights in God's law. The shrub, what does it do? It trusts in man, makes flesh his strength, turns away from the Lord and rejects God's law. And this leads to some very um, natural consequences or results. The tree is blessed. All he does, he prospers. The shrub is cursed. It appears to prosper, but from an eternal point of view, it is not prospering at all. And I would say this, a cursed man starts out as a shrub, and we see in Psalm 1, it ends up at chaps. It degenerates. It never gets any better. It's not going to grow up in a tree. It's only going to end up a chaff. So that is the difference between the tree and chaff, the blessed man and the cursed man. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the difference between morality and ethics. I talked about how the worldview, our worldview, biblical worldview influences our morality, our standing in Christ, which influences our ethics. And people get morality and ethics confused sometimes. It's, and it's, these are difficult concepts. For us, God is the ultimate source of morality. What is right? What is wrong? And it is unchanging as he, as he is. Moral relativism, though, asserts that morality is not based on any absolute standards. Rather, ethical truths, quote-unquote, depend on variables, such as situation, culture, and today people talk about feelings, so what is considered morally right or wrong then becomes law, which then becomes ethics. But just because it is lawful or ethical does not make it moral. That's how our culture defines it. Uh, God, Godquestions.org defines it this way, and he talks about this. The current reigning comparator to biblical morality in our culture is social consensus. In other words, our morality is shaped and changed by the culture around us. It should be easy to see that if social consensus is a moral compass, then we have built our morality on a foundation of shifting sand. Social consensus is just that, a consensus. It is a general picture of the general social mores of a society. A generation or two ago, homosexuality, divorce, adultery were not accepted, even considered sinful. Nowadays, these are considered normal and legally supported and is not stigmatized as it once was. Basically, what we have at social consensus is what happened to the Israelites a couple of generations after conquering the Promised Land. In Judges 17.6, it says, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The people abandoned God, and within a couple of generations, they were doing what was evil in the sight of God. So we see here, a blessed man is a man of God-centered ethics. His character... His actions, his, uh, uh, what he does, are determined by God's word. 
And how do we know that? He talks about it in, in verses 3 and 4. There is fruit. There is evidence of his blessedness. Paul Washer has a great definition of being blessed. He says this, The blessed are those who have entered into a covenant relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ. They are being instructed in his word and walk in submission to it, and consequently their lives are marked by peace, joy, hope, and fruitfulness. Fruitfulness with regards to their character and their deeds. Fruitfulness with regards to their character and deeds. So some questions to ask yourself about this third point. You know, which type of tree are you? Are you like the shrub? Are you like the tree that provides blessing to others? Are you rooted in the source? Are we sending our roots deep down to draw from the source, which is God's word? Are we bearing fruit? Are we increasingly bearing fruit? Are you the same size you are now as you were 10 years ago? Like if a tree is not growing in 10 years, something's, something's wrong with it, right? And are you a source of spiritual life to others, like the prosperous tree? Do you offer life and shade and sustenance to others around you? So that's the third point. So we have the blessed man has godly worldview. His morality is based on God's word. And how he lives out his life or his ethics are based on a, on a God-centered view of ethics. And the last one here is destiny. Number four is destiny. In verses 5 and 6 we see, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So remember this, worldview determines your ethics. Ethics determine your character. Character determines your actions. And actions determine your destiny. In Psalm 73, if you want to briefly uh, jump to Psalm 73, we see how the wicked seem to prosper and flourish. And this is something we see around us today. I'm not going to read all of it, but Psalm 73, verses 3 to 12 He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff. They speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And it's a good picture of those that we see around us as well, who have a man-centered worldview, prospering, or seeming to prosper. But we don't need to worry. This is all temporary, right? We don't just cease to exist one day. There is no, you know, do what you want. It doesn't matter because we all just die and it all ends. We know it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And the final contrast we see here in, in Psalm chapter 1 is, the, is between the blessed and the cursed and where they end up in eternity, the destiny. There is clear and final separation of these paths. 
And if you question, like I do sometimes, why the evil prosper and the wicked prosper and seem to get away with it all, know this. There is a destiny that all men, all men have to face. An appointment with God where all of us will have to answer for what we have done. And in these two last two verses in Psalm 1, we see that the wicked, what, what, what happens to them? They will not stand at the judgment or be left standing. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And isn't it amazing that the God of the universe knows us and knows the path we are on and knows exactly what is going on with us in our lives? Spurgeon, in his commentary on chapter 1, says this, The Lord is knowing the way of the righteous. He is constantly looking at their way. And though it may be often in mist and darkness, yet the Lord knoweth it. If it be in the clouds and tempest of affliction, he understandeth it. He numbereth the hairs of our head. He will not suffer any evil to befall us. He knoweth the way that I take, and when he had tried to find me, I shall come forth as gold. But the way of the ungodly shall perish. Not only shall they perish themselves, but their way shall perish too. Their righteous carves his name upon the rock. But the wicked writes his remembrance in the sand. The righteous man plows the furrows of earth and sows a harvest there which shall never be fully reaped till he enters the joys of eternity. But as for the wicked, he plows the sea. And though there may seem to be a shining trail behind his keel, yet the wave shall pass over it and the place that knew him shall know him no more. The very way of the ungodly shall perish. May the Lord cleanse our hearts and our ways that we may escape the doom of the ungodly and enjoy the blessedness of the righteous. End quote. So I wanted to leave you with a few questions uh, to think about and you can take a personal test as, we, as I read these questions. And our goal here is to see if you feel like you are blessed or do you feel like you're cursed. Are you, are you the blessed man in Psalm 1? Number one, can you say you are a regenerate man? Have you been transplanted into God's kingdom and changed by God's grace? If yes, you're a blessed man. Number two, is your worldview God-centered? Do you shun counsel or even if you do get counsel from ungodly men, do you filter them out through, through, filter them through God's word? If yes, you're blessed. Are you like this tree in Psalm 1 drawing from the source of life and truth? Are you planted with deep roots to withstand any storm? If yes, you are a blessed man. Do you shun the danger of the downward spiral of sin, refusing to first walk, refusing to stand, and finally refusing to sit with those who mock and scoff against God? If yes, you are a blessed man. Are your ethics, your character, how you live out your life, godly? If yes, you are a blessed man. Do you feel like you're like a tree that is growing and blessing others? If yes, you're a blessed man. And finally, is your destination secure? Are you known by God and, and do you know God? And if your answer to these questions is yes, if you can truly say my worldview, my morality, my heart, my ethics, my destiny are all like this man described in Psalm 1, then know you're a blessed man. And if your answer is no, or you're not sure, then I would ask you to consider what Christ has to offer all of us today. Let's pray.
Father God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you have blessed us so richly in the heavenly places. Um, And we are so blessed with so many resources, freedoms that we enjoy here in this country. And yet, Lord, it is not about those blessings. There is way more that your word reminds us. Help us to think about uh, what we heard today from Psalm 1, to think about the blessed man and what it means to be blessed, to have a godly worldview, to have godly character, to have godly ethics, and have a destiny that is secure in you. And help us to think about how we uh, are like this tree and how we may be growing or not growing and how we can be of blessing to others. We don't want to be like this shrub that barely survives year after year and has nothing to offer to people around it, but we may be like this tree that offers shade and nourishment and blessing to others around it. And maybe be rooted. Lord, the one thing this chapter tells us that we have to do with all of this is to be rooted, to draw from the source, from your word, and to take the time and effort to do that, to build ourselves up in order that we may bless others and get the gospel out to others. May we be fruitful in our lives, we pray. And may that be evident in in our character, in our behavior, in our works. I thank you for all the men who came out, and I pray that we'll be built up even through our teaching today and pray for a good service tomorrow and that we'll be continue to build up tomorrow as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.